Hi, folks. Um, it's currently uh, four o'clock in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, and ACT, and uh, six o'clock in New Zealand. Um, and we've come a bit early tonight um, because, generally speaking, we come at seven. It's just that we uh, wish to give some uh, lenience to our guest who's currently in Hilo, which is on the east coast of the Big Island of Hawaii. And, um, you know, it's pretty late for them over there in Hawaii. They're back on yesterday's time zone. So obviously we're ahead of them. And um, Julia's organised this particular, um, well, I think it's going to be an interesting show because uh, there's a, a bit of history to it and there's a bit of modernism in terms of construction. So um, there you go, Julia, it's uh, back to you, mate. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to tonight's episode of Dreaming the New Dream with our special guest, Hajar Gibran. And Hajar Gibran is um, a descendant of Khalil Gibran, who was the author of The Prophet. And Hajar Gibran shares the spiritual and literary tradition and ancestry and um, has written a book called The Return of the Prophet that um, describes um, his connection with Khalil Gibran and uh, the communications from this well-known and beloved messenger of love. A lot of people, you know, certainly before I met you, Hajar, um, I had read Khalil Gibran when I was at, uni at university in London, The Prophet, The Madman. And um, in Australia, when you go to a lot of weddings, they will often quote the, mm -hmm. write the um, poem by Khalil Gibran about the love should be Know, like two setters standing side by side, um, sharing love and creating love rather than bonding each other. So we're delighted to have you there. And yes, thank you, Jeff. That's that's obviously the original book. And perhaps as an introduction, I, I might just quote some parts of your book. Um, you know, you mentioned yourself in the opening that um, it was only, you know, after you, after your brother's death, when you were in despair, that your mother came to you um, after you'd had a big accident <laughs> and you'd spiraled into despair and um, she was uh, left a book by your bedside that you opened at random and your eye fell upon this line, which was, even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. And um, you write that... Um, you walked into the kitchen and you asked your mother, Mum, who is this? And she said, that's your great uncle Khalil. You should read his book. It's beautiful, she said. You put some dinner on a plate, went to your room, shutting the door, flipped through. The wind was howling outside. Lightning, thunderclap shook the house. Rain came pouring down. You watched the rain build up at the top of the window, stream down over the panes. Your eyes swelled with rhythmic convulsions. You let go of the storm within you. For the first time since Gary's death, I cried my heart open. That was your first connection with Khalil Gibran. Yes, I guess it was. So how long ago did you write this book, Asha? Uh, well, let's see, it was published in 2009, and I spent the previous five years working on it. So, um, 
from 2004 onward. Mm. And what did it feel like when you sort of packed off the manuscript and sent it to the publisher? <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure what moment you're talking about, but uh, it was quite, you know, even to this day, I, uh, it was quite a profound and miraculous experience, a miraculous time of my life that that book came through. And, um, you know, I'm still really amazed by it. I've sort of moved on and doing other things with my life now. And, uh, but every once in a while I sit down with the book and, and reconnect with the spirit, Khalil spirit. And it's, um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how to, how to even uh, start putting into words the mystery and uh, that that book is to me and how inspiring it is, how personal it is. Of course, it's my personal story too. So yeah, I don't know, ask me some questions. I, I'm not sure what to say. Yeah, no, fair enough. And um, I mean, Khalil Gibran, you know, I didn't actually realize, but he, he um, you know, he migrated to the US and um, his books the best sell was the best selling um, book for many years in America. It inspired Eric um, Elvis Presley, David Bowie, and Johnny Cash. Um, but reading through your book, you know, you you bring the same genre, the same depth and purity through. Um, I'm in your chapter Dawn, which you know is obviously the beginning of your story in this lifetime. Yes, and I love this. You know, it says my parents and their love said. Though I was born of their flesh, my soul was conceived from life's eternal longing. And that as a child, that you you actually had a hard time dealing with the struggles and suffering of humanity. And you list a couple of points, and I don't actually know which country you were in when you were growing up, but it was, you, know, you talk about, you know, feeling, feeling for the poor aggrieved multitudes suffering under the heavy foot of the stone-hearted, countless dispossessed children lost and forgotten on crowded roads to nowhere, the hollow babble of hypocritical warlords who assault with pious vengeance, maiming the innocent, leaving the war-torn wailing with terror. And, um, you know, there's a lot of that going on now, but you know, when you were growing up, what, what, what was that sort of, what were you referring to? What were your experiences? Where were you? I was born in South Dakota in a small sort of agricultural uh, town of about 10,000. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly what was going on, what I was aware of. I mean, I was aware, of, you know, my parents had gone through World War II, so they were, you know, I was aware of the Holocaust and just aware of, I, I just, it, it's always been, you know, in my youth, it was a real powerful theme of my question that I, that really perplexed me, like the suffering in the world. And, you know, if there's a creator God, why is there such suffering? 
why you know, God is a loving creator, good creator, then why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? It's, you know, I, I, I remember even as a young boy going to a priest and asking him that, having a private session with him. So, um, you know, and I, and I, but when, you know, writing a book, it's a creative channeling in a way that book was. And so even though I'm writing poetically about my youth, it's, it's really, you know, there's a lot of poetic license. Like I'm, I'm weaving together who I am in that moment while I'm writing too, even though I'm reflecting on a memory of my childhood. It all sort of, you know, I didn't really so much, uh, you know, write those words from my speaking self as I'm speaking now. They were more of, uh, you know, an inspired channeling. Mm. Yeah, I might set the scene um, for the audience that, you know, basically, I, I don't know how old you were when your brother died and um, and then you... Sorry, 18, that's, yeah. and you know, you've been very close together and um, it really uh, pretty much took took you took you to the cleaners, we'd say in Australia, but you know, you sort of spiraled yeah. and, um, but throughout it, I think you say that even when you were in jail, you suddenly got this apparition, this man with a moustache who appeared to you, who you didn't know who it was. Yes. Um, and he was looking at you kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, I'm. You know what I'm more interested in talking about mm. is I, I. You know, it really touches me that my book has touched you, and you know, to me, it's a great gift to meet someone who has been touched by my experience, and uh, I'm just really. Fascinated. I want to know what that's like for you. Well, I think I'm kind of jealous because, you know, I think Jeff and I, well, Jeff, Jeff sees visions and apparitions. So, if, you know, if spirits come in and, you know, they land on his balcony, he actually sees them. I'm a bit blind. I was born with glasses, <laughs> eyes operated, <laughs> vision's not better. So, you know, I just love the idea, that, you know, just, just, I mean, it really touches me that, um, you know, even in jail when you're feeling, you know, you're really at the bottom that, you know, your great grand uncle would, you know, parachute in and uh, make himself visible to you and um, speak to you just beautiful words of truth. And um, I didn't discover like channeled words till later in my life. From then I, when I went through five years of just reading channeled words because the purity of it completely touched me and it was just so different of other stuff that I'd read up till that point. There's just a quality where your heart knows and you resonate with it and it is the truth versus all that words, all those information, all the conflicting information we can get from our families, from the institutions, from mm. the educators, from the politicians that you, we kind of yearn for that truth. And I think that's something that both you and your great uncle had. So I'll quote, hi, Elizabeth, thanks for joining, and Heidi as well. So what he did say at that time, you know, sort of um, 
that, um, you know, would you realize that you're in your brilliance in a world that offers you less than it needs you to be, your light is revealed by the darkness it dispels. So it's just those, the bridges that he created and that you create. And you've gone on to, you know, you went on to teach and bec become a spiritual teacher yourself. You? Yeah, for a while I did. I'm not really practicing that now, but I'm really impressed by where, you know, just what you're speaking to me. The, the quotes that you're picking out of the book, you know, I mean, people, I, I've never had people pick those quotes out and um, want to dialogue around them. But the ones that you're picking out are really special ones to me. And I'm really kind of just blown away that, uh, you know, you just, you, you, you've gone right for the, ones that I think were the most important to me. And so I'm just so happy to meet you. Oh, that's lovely. Can I just step in there? Hey, um, do you actually, when you get a piece of paper and um, you just start writing and it, it's like gibberish, um, monkey mind stuff, and then all of a sudden, so it's like a ray of sunshine just comes through a dark cloud or the dark whatever it is that's going on the monkey mind and all of a sudden you just write right right and all that stuff the monkey mind ceases and then in comes the um that inspiration that incisive um knowledge is that how that comes through So we've got the kitchen view at the moment. <laughs> mm. It's presence and silence, Jeff. <laughs> no, that's that's the answer. Um, let's go to the um, Hilo there. So uh, Big Island, Hawaii. It's a pretty impressive um, part of the world in Hawaii circumstances. You've been there? Yeah, yeah. We had 16 days there. There's a group of us, there's over 24 of us went there and we spent some quality time. We actually went right around the whole island and inland. Um, what's most important is that it's got the right in here is these two major mountains in Mauna Lea and Mauna Kea. And um, there are over 13,000, it might even be more, feet. You know, a lot of people go up there and they um, suffer from... Um, Uh, oxygen deprivation yeah but on this particular mm -hmm. spot there they've got <clears throat> it's like 13 major big observatories there you go um mm -hmm. yeah, it's a massive place and they get really good clear um skies you know to go right into and delve into the, the star systems you know yeah um so no, he's actually pulled out, mate. Oh, maybe he's lost the connection. Yeah. So uh, I noticed that when we were over there, <coughs> we had to go and get a um, oh, AT&T SIM card. Um, hmm. 
yeah, so the, the coverage around there is essentially pretty pretty poor. You can't use Sprint, you can't use Verizon. It's essentially mm. AT and T. Um, yeah, and, and I think he's, he's living in an eco village or you know some some kind of um, you know built there their own home. Yeah. Oh, I'm so you know when I moved my laptop, I didn't plug it in, and the battery. Oh. Ran out. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that, Jeff. You were speaking. Um, no worries. I've got my now. I've got my iPad there. Okay. Oh, the lighting. Do a quick shout out to the audience while we're there. Hi, Karen. You're on. Yes, Hajar was having technical difficulties as in the electricity side versus the telecoms. <laughs> okay. Where's the camera on this? I guess it's right there. Yeah, the lighting's a lot better too. Yeah, yeah. And um, just for the audience, the squeaks are actually frogs. Hajar, how many, what kind of frogs are we listening to? Because they sound different uh, from Australian frogs, I can tell you that. Yeah, they call them cokey frogs. Cokey frogs. What do they look like? They're little. Yeah, they're real small. But I'm just trying to get this set up. Okay, I guess that doesn't really work. There we go. Well, I apologize for the interruption. It's no right. worries. So we went from 18. Yeah, we can roll with it. We went from 18 and then you writing the book. And then after the book, what happened? What did you do with your life, Pacha? I was asking him, hang on, hang on. I was asking him about um, when he starts to get a piece of paper and then. Um, oh, yeah, just... sorry. Yeah, Does he just you go just like a concrete mixer and just bloody empty out your brain cells with all whatever's coming giggly got you know boom boom and then all of a sudden this this ray of sunshine comes down and then boom you just words start to form and before you know you got sentences and before you know you got a paragraph and before you know you got a love letter you know, from your great uncle is that is that how it works I mean what happens there well. You know, there were definitely were times like that, times when I'd be walking and I didn't have a pen paper with me or any kind of recording and I could feel it coming. It was like it was something coming from the from a distance and I knew it was coming and I had to run and get a pen and paper uh, so that I could you know, write it down. And I, I just I'm remembering this one time when I was uh, in this uh, place called Dream Canyon in Colorado and I had to run down the river and across this suspension bridge and and yeah that was that was a song actually it isn't in the book but it, it was a lyrics for a song but the book you know I had I had two practices you know once it started coming through then I I dedicated myself to it and I did two practices that daily practices that uh, brought it through. One was um, before I would go to sleep, I would ask my subconscious mind to, you know, answer a particular question or, you know, I had a dialogue. And then I had a voice activated recorder that I slept with. And in the morning when I woke up, I would just start speaking 
before I, I shouldn't say when I woke up, but in that hypnagogic state before I was awake, before I opened my eyes, you know, I just sort of like grog around, find the recorder, turn it on and start channeling. And some of it came that way. And then the other practice I had was a, a meditation practice that I called the voice of love. And I would just sit for, you know, maybe different amount of time, like I would say from 15 minutes to an hour and connecting to my channel. And, um, and then I would write after that, I'd come out of the meditation, take my notebook, and I just wrote to myself. It was, I called it the voice of love, and it was this loving voice that talked to me. So it would you know, usually start out with, hey, Hajar, here I am with you again, the voice of love, or I'm here, I'm with you, I know what you're going through, I'm here to love you and guide you something like that. And then there would be a message that would come. And so some of the book came through that way. I think a lot of it did. I still do that. Very impressive. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's almost like writing a love letter to yourself, don't you? How you and how you going? Yeah, stuff. exactly. <laughs> writing a love letter to yourself. Yeah, and then uh, a couple of days later, you write, <laughs> and all of a sudden you get this buddy reply that just comes from nowhere, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's amazing, you know, when you start relating to the mystical, it comes to life. I, I think that uh, I've been watching the parody of, of the English aristocracy, you know, like the stiff upper lip you know, and um, they don't really get in touch with the emotions and what they really want to do, they can't do because the aristocracy says, oh, we can't do that and we can't deal with the commoner and all that stuff. And, um, and so they they give themselves their, their own uppercut in the sense that they're not really getting in touch with their emotions. And, of course, then they start thinking about what other people are thinking of them. And so they, they never make that breakthrough. And um, now we have a guy like you talking about the fact no, I don't need all that aristocracy and bloody gamesmanship and one-upmanship and you can't do that because that's how our upper-class way of life is all about. And now all of a sudden, you know, we, you come along and you say, you don't give a hoot about what other people think. You just get on with what you're doing and, and you've found a way where you can actually write that love letter to yourself and you get a reply back. I mean, I can't see yeah. anyone with a stiff upper lip from England, buddy. Um, venturing into the world that you're talking about really is that the world you grew up in no i've just i've been to england a few times but um i'm sure julie would explain that that seems to be a bit of a caste system there in england with uh, regards to um the so-called earls and the dukes and the um so-called aristocracy and the stiff upper lip you know we can't do that you know. but i just you know it's just interesting to me that you're talking about them and you know how I have this perspective that, you know, we each live in a unique world. We have this myth that there's a world that is somehow the same for all of us. <laughs> and it's not the case. You know, we each live in sort of our own imaginary world. And uh, I just find it really interesting that you're talking about this stiff upper lip. Um, what do you call them? 
aristocracy. Aristocracy. These are like, who are they anyway? Well, they're called your... elites. They all gone to private schools, and you know we've got to keep up with the Joneses, and you know. Yeah, got to... but what it? I mean, I'm just interested that you're talking about them. Why? Well, I, I, I've just seen the parallel between that type of culture, and then we've got you in Hawaii. Oh. You come from South Dakota, and then you've come across into Hawaii, and you, you've got this historical event with your great uncle. And yes. um, as we started to move into his um, 26 poems that he's written, and then of course now you've come up, and we've found out you found a way where you wrote a love letter to yourself. I really can't see the, the, the irony of those people from England doing exactly what you're doing because that wouldn't be oh, in, it's just in a their completely different um, world of, of operation and how to do things. And you've sort of broken the ice and say, I can walk through the door and I can be who I am. And, and I've actually found a way of doing it. And you're actually standing up here and explaining to people. I really can't see the people oh. that I was referring to from England standing up here and saying exactly what you've just gone and said about running across the, the swing bridge in Colorado, get down a piece of paper and write it, or even have a little uh, voice activated, this thing by your bed. I mean, that to me tells a person, to me, is really emotionally connected with himself, who understands where he's coming from, and is prepared to, um, you know, break the mold. You know, I think it's fantastic. Awesome. Yes. We don't meet what very many you? of those aristocracies here in Hawaii. <laughs> you probably have a lot of tourists and backpackers, though. Well, actually, the, the side of the island I live on is the last place that people come. There's very few tourists. And uh, the, one, the tourists that do come are sort of a special breed. Of, uh, mm. I mean, it's a real counterculture here. Mm. What made you move to Hawaii? I, I know that's where Karen met, met you, so you, presumably you must have been somewhere else before you did. <laughs> Tell well, us more about that. So um, I'm just trying to remember who Karen is now. Because um, my Australian met. friend, she took you to a waterfall the first time you went to Hawaii. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, do you have a picture around? A girl from Toowoomba, Jeff. Do you, do you have a picture? I think you know Karen as well. And she was living in Hawaii when you 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 visited. You were on a workshop or something, and uh, she must have been gone to workshop. All right, here you go. Oh, sorry. Okay, Karen's saying sorry. She went by the name Crystal then. That's why you're confused. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh yes, I remember Crystal. There's a picture of her. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, you. I was. I thought I was losing my memory. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so you asked me like how I ended up in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to give you a simple answer because you know it's kind of a long story, and I've I've been coming and going from Hawaii since like 1995 so it you know i thought i was leaving but it calls me back you know they say it's the spirit of uh, pali that's the goddess of the volcano um, that she calls you here 
for a purpose. And she, you know, it's usually to uh, transform your soul. <laughs> you know, that's what she is. She's the goddess of the volcano. She is the great destroyer and the great creator. And she doesn't mess around. And so that's my, I think my favorite answer is to say, Pally called me here. And uh, she didn't really like what she saw the first time. She kicked me out. Yeah. Wanted me to, gr wanted me to grow up. And she, um, you know, she really put me through a lot. And then I grew up. And she called me back. And so now I'm here. Oh, that's so tantalizing because I mean, I know you've done Hawaiian shamanism as well. So, you know, you, to, yeah, you know, I'd love to understand more about, about your connection with the local spirits and goddesses and gods. The, they're, they're, How does it work? Their shamanic practice, they mm. call it ho'oponopono. It's basically making things right. Mm -hmm. and um, making a pono. Pono means just, right? And um, when I, you know, I'd been, I'd been, I studied hypnotherapy and shamanism and, you know, neuralistic programming and a lot of different types of, you know, living in Boulder, Colorado, that's like the Mecca, everything is there. And, and I was really hungry for as much as I could learn. So I but when I, when I uh, came to, the, to Hawaii and started learning about their Ho'oponopono practice, it put, a, it put everything together. Because I was already, you know, just taking bits and pieces that worked for me from the things I'd learned and, and putting it, you know, understanding it in my own unique way and, and working with it. But when I learned Ho'oponopono, or at least the version that I learned um, just was a synchronicity of exactly the way I was seeing things. You know, they call it the power of the healing dream. And we, you know, I realized that I was living, my life is a dream. I'm living in a dream. And the dream always has uh, something unresolved in it, you know, where a the human condition is that we're not complete. We're a work in progress. There are conflicts in our soul that aren't resolved. There are qualities of our being that we haven't realized yet, that we haven't integrated into who we are. So we're, we're this work in progress and we and you know you can just say that we're in some sense a ball of need and uh, uh, the the healing dream is the answer to that need that's you know relevant in your life and um so that that's what you know that's kind of and that's what ho'oponopono does at least the way i work with it you know it's so different for so many different people yeah i'm just actually wondering if you can elaborate because um um and karen has actually introduced me to that a long time ago but i've sort of not gone deeply into it from what i understand hope ho, ho, <laughs> i can't pronounce it but it's it's basically the process where you got you say kind of go i 
I see you, you know, where that ball is made and all the dissonances, I see you, you, you acknowledge it, you accept it, you ask for forgiveness. So I see you, I hear oh, yeah. you, I, um, please forgive me, I love you. And like yes. that's a part of your body. I'm, that kind of I'm sorry, process. please forgive me. I love you, thank you. Yes, that's what, that, that's not what I'm talking about, really. I mean, that's a prayer, right? That's a mm -hmm. part of the people associate with Ho'oponopono, and I love that. But what I'm talk, is talking about is actually like um, conscious dreaming. You know, for the um, most part, our dream is unconscious. You know, most of our being is unconscious, most of what motivates us, most of what you could say our core beliefs are, you know, like our entire ancestral lineage lives within us. You know, who we are and what makes us who we are is for the most part buried in an unconscious realm within us, you know, like our conscious mind is just the tip of the iceberg. But the conscious mind is the portal through which we can connect with our higher mind or our spiritual mind or our, you know, like all that's unrealized within us, all the unrealized potential, all the answers to our need exists in this realm that we can access through our conscious mind. And that's, you know, you do that in a dynamic dreamlike fashion, you know, like you interact with it and it becomes real for you and the reality that, you know, and that, you know, that's, that's what Khalil is to me, right? Like I didn't meet Khalil, like and shake his hand and, you know, sit down and have a meal together. We met in the spirit world. We met in dream time. He came, he became very real to me in a dream world. And that dream healed me. That dream blessed me. That dream became, um, you know, my healing dream. It became that. Um, I was transformed through the power of that dream. Does that, does that all make sense? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. for. I'm glad I asked for you to elaborate, and I'm glad you explained. Um, oh, great. Did you say that dream healing, um, I mean, here we also have dream time healing. And so, for example, in a meditation dream. last night, you know, in a meditation last night, we did facilitated the release of past life vows and oaths. And we're just in this beautiful dream space of healing energies and you know this thing about you're pointing out that the potential lies within us and what we did at the end was that we had this liquid light flowing through all of us and channeled into Uluru and that was like our dream healing for obviously all the suffering that's happened there or the disconnect that's happened. Wow. Oh, that sounds beautiful. That's wonderful that you, you're doing that with 
Do you have a group of people you do that with on a regular basis? Yeah, lots, lots of us are doing that all over the world, I think. I think and, and guess what? We can all talk about it on Radio yeah. FM 88 yeah. <laughs> and on other channels. I think that's what, you know, we really are in a sort of springtime in terms of being able to talk about this openly and, you know, more even more yes. so for you, you know, being from Lebanon and, you know, the Arab Middle East, a lot of them couldn't be doing that you know, at the moment. So we're very privileged and we're lucky to have that freedom. Yes, we are. Right, so now um, you've moved on. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah, let's go to the let's go to the um, sustainability in the houses and stuff like that. That's a really interesting subject. I felt. I mean, it's almost like you're taking your creativity into words, and now your your creativity is now seeing shapes, platonic shapes, if you want to, as, as such, to be um, to create a, a way of living in in a space that's probably more harmonious with the uh, with the body, the emotional body. Than, physical body is quite interesting the photos i've seen of your uh, dwellings yeah oh thank you yeah well um i can talk about that for sure um so well i've you know i've always been uh, since my childhood just a builder you know i built my first tree house when i was probably I don't know, 13 maybe, something like that. And uh, I went through engineering school. I actually studied electrical engineering, but my mind has always been more of mechanical and structural engineer. Uh, so, and I've been a craftsman all my life too. You know, I, I was a carpenter's helper in high school in the summers. And uh, I was a professional carpenter when I was 18. And, and I, I had my own, you know, I've won awards for my furniture design and other things that I've made. Uh, so that's, you know, that's, okay. So that's a part. Another part is that I've always needed to be free. And so, mm -hmm. I figured out really early in my life how to live without housing costs. And because I could not allow myself to get trapped in, you know, having monthly bills. <laughs> that, um, and so, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I freed myself. And um, community has always been, you know, I've lived in community and those have been the best years of my life when I've been living in community. And so I've had this feeling like I want to solve the housing crisis, the costs, those monthly bills. I want to solve that for um, my community, not just for myself. And so that's a big part of it. And uh, the other part was just life. You know, the con I didn't, I didn't really want to be a builder anymore. I, you know, that's, I'm over that. You know, and I was really wanting to live into my spiritual life 
as a spiritual healer and the bringer of the voice of Gibran. And, you know, I, I, I would, I built the Gibran Center. Yeah, that's my bedroom at the Gibran Center. I built the Gibran Center in Thailand. I'd married a Thai woman and uh, she wanted to create a school in her village for the girls so they wouldn't have to go into prostitution. And so I went there to build her school and ended up falling in love with the place. And we got this really amazing property, and uh, which is an amazing story just about that. But so I, I was just building the Gibran Center. And then after doing that for six or seven years, everything shifted and I could no longer stay in Thailand and run the Gibran Center. I could tell you that story. That's a different story. <clears throat> but at the same time, people all over the world were interested in how I was building. You know, because I did. I I was just building for myself, for the Gibran Center, and it just caught fire, and I had to leave, and I lost everything while I was there. And so I just. So that's a part, you know, I needed to do something. And people were asking how, how I was building. And then uh, there's another important part too, that's kind of eluding me right now. I, it just spoke to me, but then I was talking. But it's my uh, interest in miracles. This is probably the, yeah, the, the biggest part, like the book came through as an answer to the question, what would I do if I could create a miracle? Because I had just gone through, I'd witnessed a miracle, uh, a shaman. That's a whole nother story. Uh, but uh, I, I witnessed a miraculous healing of a friend of mine who was on his deathbed with hepatitis C and he was on a morphine drip for pain and he was on insulin for diabetes. The doctor said he had maybe two weeks left to live. There was nothing they could do for him. He'd lost all his hair. He had open lesions all over his body. I was, he asked me to sit with him while he died, a, a, a support group. There were six of us and, um, we were all just assumed he was going to die. And we heard of this shaman who had cured someone of hepatitis C and he, um, he uh, offered to come and work with Kurt, my friend, on one condition that he promised to die well. And he meant that he just leave a legacy of how courageous he died, leave a legacy to his friends and family and community. And Kurt promised to do that. So Shaman X came and performed this month long fire ceremony and called his spirit back. By the end of the month, Kurt was fully recovered and uh, gained all his weight, was a healthy man who was impassioned with life. And a lot of other people got healed during that 
ceremony too. And it was at the same time, I, I was going through a real, one of my <laughs> personal crises, a big one. And, um, but there was nothing compared to my friend who was dying. So anyway, it just, you know, it just inspired me to ask the question, like, wow, miracles can happen. So what would I do if I could perform a miracle? And I said, well, I would write the return of the prophet. <laughs> I want to bring through the spirit of my great uncle because he was, to me, the most inspiring thing I'd met in life. And uh, lo and behold, the miracle came true. And so um, when that was done, I asked myself the next question, what would I do if I could create a miracle? And <laughs> I said, well, I would solve the issue of housing in the world. I would pr provide a solution so that people can have a home homeless can have homes, children can have homes, young people can have homes. It doesn't have to be a big deal. You don't have to spend 30 years paying a mortgage to have a home. You know, it's just like given. So anyway, now that's what I'm doing. Working on that miracle. That's an amazing story. Tell us more about the um, the eco domes, and I'm just uh, pronouncing it Dom Gaia, the company that you founded to to provide that housing. Tell us more about the actual homes. You know, Jeff's been showing us pictures of their homes. They're um, round, well, they look a bit like a bit domes. What what is it? Um, what format and template and model have you been able to settle on to be able to provide affordable well, and eco-friendly housing. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I've settled, you know, it's still a work in progress for sure. Um, I have some new ways that I'm working that I'm really inspired about. The, the way we've been, what we're famous for is our aircrete domes. And um, I coined the word aircrete. It seems like it was less than five years ago, I think even after I left Thailand. But, um, and that just caught fire. I was so amazed. I mean, that was a miracle. Uh, just that I made up this word and all of a sudden, <laughs> I just got a, an, inner, uh, an email from this big engineering firm called Precision Engin Structural Engineering. And they're, they're creating a page on their website dedicated to Aircrete. And, um, so aircrete is now a global phenomenon. It, the material has been around for a long time. I just gave it the name aircrete and then it, it's really caught on. Um, I'm sorry, just for the listeners, what, what is the difference so between can, concrete and aircrete? Well, concrete is a heavy, dense uh, material made out of cement and aggregates, sand. And aircrete, the only thing it has common with concrete is that it uses cement, but no sand or gravel. And it's, you mix the cement with a lather, like imagine mixing cement with shaving cream, and then it hardens 
like into this concrete that's filled with air it floats so it's very lightweight and um, but it has the properties of concrete in that it's not damaged by water it's fireproof insects you know termites won't bother it and because it's mostly air it's it's really inexpensive and ecological because you're you know, you, the primary ingredient is air. Uh, you know, you're just hardening these air bubbles with cement. And you can use very ecological cements too. You know, you can make air with magnesium oxide, which is a nutritional supplement. You can really create a healthy house. Uh, just using magnesium oxide and Epsom salts makes a really hard cement, even harder than the cement. Portland cement that's used in concrete. Uh, it's just that it's quite expensive and not that easy to access. And I think it's pretty available in Australia. I'm not sure, but we uh, we've worked with that. We don't use it that much just because it's so expensive. And we're using it for interior plaster, so that your interior space is really healthy with the magnesium oxide. Um, yeah. And how is it shaped? Do you actually, you know, there's, do you actually build molds? Or do people build molds themselves? No, no, we just set up what we call a compass arm. Like we'll just put a pole in the ground mm -hmm. and, and make it three feet high. That way the widest part of the dome is three feet off the ground. So when you, wa when, when you walk into the wall, it's not coming in on, at you. It, um, yeah, the dome you're showing there isn't how that one is, but yeah. And so we set up this pole and then three feet off the ground, we, we fasten what's called a compass arm to that pole and that'll just swing 360 degrees around. And it basically draws the dome in space because it's spinning from that center point. And then we use that to lay the bricks. So you don't need a form. You don't need to measure anything. Uh, you can actually lay the bricks with your eyes closed because you just put it up against the compass arm. That's ingenious. Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. It doesn't take a lot of skill. You know, you don't, you don't need to be a skilled builder to build. It's kind of like building an igloo in a way, you know, just imagine yeah. taking a bunch okay. of blocks of snow and stacking them on top of each other and you can carve them so they fit together. Aircrete, you can, you know, you can carve it with a butter knife. So if people were interested in building it, and you know, a lot of young ones you know, in, in Australia as well, there's, um, you know, it's very expensive to buy a house and um, a lot of young ones are just buying land and trying to make something and sell eco-friendly, would your company be able to train them online or how, do, how does it work? Yeah, we, we, yeah have, we have a number of students in Australia that are, that are building and teaching. Yeah? Yes. Um, we just had a really wonderful Australian woman here for our five-week workshop. And then she stayed yeah. for about a month afterwards. And she's teaching, I think she's in Australia right now teaching um, Darlene, I can't remember her last name, 
But okay, maybe I she can hope... pop on later and um, put put her name in the comment. Maybe she she puts it in the comment box, then people will be able to connect with her directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me see if I. But yeah, I would highly recommend Darlene as a teacher, and just as a person in general. Mm. Jeff, what do you think about the homes? Do you like the look of them? Well, actually, um, I'm glad you brought the subject up. Um, there's a place in, um, in the Gold Coast um, called um, Kanangra, and there is a facility that's come together now. It's called um, Bush Tucker's Retreat. And now they're building um, domes, and um, they're actually building them so they're just under the actual council's um, requirements so they don't have to get signed off. And they've had um, a number of workshops already, and they show they come down and people learn to make the blocks, and then they set up the same system that exactly what Hajar was talking about. Anyway, um, two young ladies up on the Sunshine Coast in Brisbane bought a block of land, and um, they put their plans before council, and they got knocked back. Oh, and um, so it just so happened that they were so out of the block they wanted to just get into it. Um, uh oh, they, you're cutting off. They um they went to the workshop at um Bush Tucker's retreat and they learned so much. And there they told them they had this problem with the um the council. And these people then at Bush Tucker's organized uh, an engineer and the engineer with an architect drew a whole new set of plans, engineered them off, and they got submitted to the Sunshine Coast Council and they've been approved. And awesome. now the girls, uh, girls are now started to build these massive, um, well, the big central dome, and then the other domes off it. So um, the boys from the Bush Tucker's retreat are now taking people up to the Sunshine Coast to um, participate in weekend um, workshops as you know, voluntary labour to learn the construction of this whole um, dome construction. I think it's awesome that um, Julia didn't know what I've just explained over the, the radio here. And, I and wonder if that's your story. I, I wonder if that's Darlene doing that. Okay, so I just just sent through Darlene's lesson in a private chat, so we might um, put that into the comments. Did you get it? Yeah. Yep. yep. Okay. It. Yep. Oh, good. And Karen I, I, says I mean, that that sounds like something Darlene would be doing. It's either Darlene or another woman named uh, I think her name is Sharon came to our very first workshop and she's been teaching. She taught Darlene. And I think she even paid for Darlene to come in to Hawaii to do this last workshop that we just did. Um, but yeah, they're both really active. I think they're out of Brisbane, Brisbane. That's where we are. Mm. Oh, that's where you are. They're either there or maybe Byron Bay area. Yes, it's all quite close, right? We've posted up. Well, that's that sounds wonderful, Hasha. It sounds like you know. I just love the story that you know. You sort of, if you're not doing a miracle, what are you going to do? You're going to solve the world's housing crisis. <laughs> and it's taken off. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes it's just the questions we ask, isn't it? That forms the it rest is. of our life. <laughs> life is a quest. What's the, life is a know, quest. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what I ask sometimes is like, what's the grandest version of the highest vision of the deepest love that you can dream life? And just do it as a playful thing. You know, don't take it seriously, but get 
at least become aware of what it is. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we just end up stuck in the mud. Yes. But you have to be careful, too, you know, about getting what you ask for. Sounds like you're talking from experience. <laughs> yes. That's wisdom. Jeff's nodding. <laughs> Definitely man of wisdom. Yeah. Hey, um, when I was over there in Hilo, Iolani um, Stefani, Stephanie, she was our, um, our uh, instructor, best way to say it, facilitator. Just out of Hilo, going over towards uh, the Nani Estates, just down the outskirts, she took us to um, a cave. And um, because she was female, it was a natural a cave for um, female business. And um, she had a chat with Pelle and asked if us three males could actually come with the, the 23 females. And we went into this amazing cave. Um, Kalmana Caves, I bet. Um, it's not up by the planetarium. It's on the, outs it's on the main drag as you go out towards the markets. Yes. Yeah. It's not all that far off the main road there. So you have to go through a bit of a jungle, then you come down, then you go through the entrance to the cave and go into the... Oh, Well, basically, as you're going into the womb. Actually, amazing. amazing. And I was very fortunate that um, the other two fellas, one's a, a Maori um, elder and the other one is an Aborigine elder, and he didn't want to go because Aborigine culture was males do their stuff, females do the other. And I said to... Um, our uncle, I said, listen, uh, I think you understand the Hawaiians are trying to bridge the gap and bring males and females together, not to separate. For this this lady to actually go and ask on your behalf or our behalf as males, if we had permission to go in here and she's got it, I would actually relish the fact that she's built a bridge. And I think that's what um, our, our culture needs. Well, humanity needs to bring the males and females together and share the knowledge. Mm. Yes. Well, it's nice that you two are doing that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we do compliment each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a gift. Sometimes we bounce with each other, yeah. yeah. Well, Hajar, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in from your home in Hawaii and um, sharing you know, just those two simple questions that you asked that then became key to, um, you know, all that you've created in this life, both, and I'll just hold it up for the audiences again, the book, The Return of the Prophet, and your the company that you are the founder and, and the CEO of Dome Gaia, creating the, um, the beautiful dome houses that really remind me of Hobbitland and also other planets. And I'm sure <laughs> yeah. are, uh, creating a new space where a lot of um, young people and families and older people can, you know, just. Um, uh oh, that cut off. Oh, sorry. Well, I guess it must be time to must be time to uh, say uh, aloha because um, you're getting cut off quite a bit. Okay. Yeah.
Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show, Hajar Gibran, author of The Return of the Prophet, and you've been listening to, um, and also the founder and CEO of Dome Gaia, and Jeffrey Shaw, uh, producer and honor of Radio FM 88, and myself, Julia Chai. Thank you very much for joining us and dreaming the new dream, and um, our love to all of you. Well, so good to meet you, Julia and Jeff. I really enjoyed this. You're welcome. Good to you. Thank you.